0: Good day. Welcome back to Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to have with us Dr. Aurelie Basha. Dr. Basha is a lecturer in American history at the University of Kent. She has been in the past a fellow at the London School of Economics. And we are speaking about today her book, I Made Mistakes, Robert McNamara's Vietnam War Policy, 1960 to 1968, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Basha.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) Dr. Basha, what is, in essence, the thesis of your book?
1: So the thesis is summed up essentially in the title – in this passage in a diary, Robert McNamara tells his closest advisor on Vietnam, I made mistakes, mistake, and I, it, I spent too much time in this diary that I actually know the quote off my heart by now. It says, I've made mistakes, but the mistakes I've made are not the ones they say I've made. And then he goes on to say, you know, the truth is he never wanted combat forces in Vietnam. And essentially, that's what I spend several hundred pages talking about, is that... Um, In my research, I show that Robert McNamara made some very big mistakes on Vietnam, but being a hawk and pushing for the introduction of combat troops and of a military role in Vietnam, which is the mistake that people usually ascribe to him, is actually not the main mistake. If anything, he tried to restrain the military commitment. Um, I suggest towards the end a number of other mistakes I think he makes that are in some ways more serious.
0: Who was exactly Robert Strange McNamara before President-elect Kennedy uh, chose him to be his uh, Secretary of Defense in the latter part of uh, 1960?
1: So I talk about this a little bit in, in the beginning. It's not so much a kind of biographical account of Robert McNamara as much as what I've tried to do is focus on the office of the Secretary of Defense. And the 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 way Robert McNamara is usually represented is that he's this extremely successful executive and in that sense is different than his predecessor's um because they were more kind of public service-oriented people. What I show is that's not actually correct, right? And sure, he was president of the Ford Motor Company, but only very briefly uh, because he was actually pulled from that job to become secretary of defense. Many of McNamara's uh, predecessors had worked in the private sector, and in fact that was seen as something that was good because the defense department was seen as primarily a budgetary and you know, a management role of managing many disparate and very um, conflict-prone agencies. Um, So who is he in terms of that role? Well, he was somebody who was seen as very bright at those kind of management challenges, somebody who also could bring to bear a kind of quantitative logic, right? So we see this throughout his career. He begins, really, he hits the kind of radar of people who matter in the second world War, in his um and this is documented beautifully in Errol Morris's documentary, the Fog of war um where he helps to choose and to improve bombing targets in World War two. Um, in the kind of strategic bombing campaign, especially over Japan. So as a result of that, he's brought in with his kind of mentor, Tex Thornton, uh, and carried over to, to the Ford Motor Company, where they also tried to improve processes. But what I was surprised by as I was doing my research is actually really he much preferred... Harvard Business School, which is where he does this kind of brief hiatus. And actually, if he could have chosen what his career would have been, it probably would have been in a more kind of professorial academic role. But financial reasons push him into this kind of business world, right? And even then, you see that he kind of shies away from it. I do think he's also somebody, in terms of who is he, he's also somebody who is guided by a particular sense of public service, like many people, I think, across the kind of political spectrum in this period, and certainly that joined the kind of Kennedy administration. So who is he? I think he's both of those things. He's somebody who's very bright, who's a very skilled managerial person, who's able to dig through the noise and the numbers to see patterns, which is also important in this role, but he's also somebody with a very strong kind of sense of public service.
0: Would that explain why he was uh, chosen as opposed to someone like, say, Stuart Symington, who had both executive as well as legislative experience in uh, uh, defense policy matters?
1: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, initially, the job is offered to Robert Lovett, who uh, who is one of the people who suggests McNamara, right? I think the other thing that McNamara has going for him is that he's nominally Republican, right? And there's a sense that both the Treasury and the defense roles should be these kind of bipartisan roles and that it wouldn't be harmful for a Democrat who's seen as being potentially kind of vulnerable um, to have Republicans in those roles, right? Um, My sense digging in is that, you know, Somebody like Douglas Dillon, a treasury, is far more kind of recognizably Republican than, than McNamara is, right? But yeah, certainly there's a sense of these positions should also be in some ways apolitical, right? And Symington presumably was as seen as kind of more party political in the sense that he he'd spent so much time in kind of congressional battles, right, over defense issues.
0: In retrospect, one of the oddities of uh, his uh, service in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations is the fact that as someone who had, in essence, zero experience in um, uh, deciding uh, national security policy, he quickly became the leading actor in uh, the administration other than, you could argue, the president himself. Um, why did he have a much greater role than, say, Eisenhower's defense secretaries in the dis- in the formulation of foreign policy? Yeah, this
1: is something that I, I, I grapple with a lot because I think at different points that ends up by producing kind of negative outcomes, and I think on Vietnam in particular. I think certainly in the Kennedy administration, although my book covers both the Kennedy and the Johnson administrations um, – in the Kennedy administration, it's a combination of things. It's first of all that he's very close to President Kennedy, and he's extremely loyal. You know, earlier you asked him about who is he. He's also somebody who has kind of forged a career on being very loyal to people above him, right, and them respecting that and appreciating that. So I think Kennedy trusts him and is very, very close to him personally. So I think that's how he ends up by being part of the inner circle. That's kind of part of it, right? The other thing is I think that Kennedy, and this is, not, this is something that's kind of widely accepted, I think, in the existing kind of histories of this period, is Kennedy wants to be his own Secretary of Defense. So he puts as Secretary of State somebody who is relatively weak, really, and who isn't necessarily particularly proactive on many of these issues, certainly not on Vietnam. So there's also a void in some ways that McNamara then steps in and and fills. But at the same time, as I show in the book, he's also very, very aware of boundaries. And so that role that he takes where he becomes so important on issues like Vietnam becomes really kind of problematic because later he defines himself. He says, you know, that's not my job, for instance, when it comes to negotiations, right? He's waiting for the State Department to take a role on negotiations and doesn't in any way step in, although he sees that there's this gap from the State Department. If that makes sense?
0: I, I think it does. I mean, yeah. no one has uh, stated that uh, uh, Dean Rusk was chosen as Secretary of State because he would be another uh, someone in the mold of say Dean Acheson or John Foster <laughs> Dulles. Yeah. Uh, right. On page and and um, taking up your point, would that explain your statement on page three, where you state that uh, Secretary McNamara quote took control of the administration's policy for South Vietnam unquote?
1: Yeah. What I mean there is in the so. There are, kind of, there are various kind of ebbs and flows. This is in kind of 1962. I show that essentially at this point, Kennedy's getting extremely frustrated. And again, this is kind of widely available in, in, the, in the histories of Vietnam, is that Kennedy's extremely frustrated at seeing the kind of divisions, The the advice is going in all different directions. It seems incredibly chaotic, not just in Washington, but also in Vietnam, where people like... Paul Harkins, the general, and the Ambassador Lodge, who used to play golf together when they were back in Massachusetts, are essentially no longer on speaking terms in Vietnam. So there's a sense that nothing is working and it's a mess, so he brings in somebody like McNamara, who's very good at kind of enforcing discipline and order, to essentially take over on the issue of Vietnam and to bring order. But what happens, I show this in the, in, in the chapters, is as McNamara starts to zero in on it, he also applies his own lens. And so one of the things that he becomes incredibly concerned about is the financial cost of Vietnam. And it becomes a nearer kind of obsessive thing. To try to rein in the costs of this, you know, divisions may be playing out, but in general, the direction of travel in Vietnam is it's a more and more costly program, right? And he's very, very concerned about that for various reasons, as I show in the chapters, balance of payments concerns. Issues of being able to fund it, because most of this is being funded through the mutual assistance or the military assistance program, which is also being squeezed in the Senate. So all of these things lead McNamara in the spring of 62 to essentially say it's time to back out of this program, to wind it down, and to eventually kind of essentially get out of Vietnam before we end up. But he mentions this specifically in a position like Korea, where Korea, he sees... How he views the situation in Korea is this is a country that's completely dependent on our continuing and, as far as he can see, open-ended military presence that's extremely expensive in terms of his budget, right? So that's what taking charge means in
0: 1962. Can you relate the nature of the Office of Secretary of Defense that Secretary McNamara found uh, Upon his assuming office in early 1961.
1: Can you repeat the question? Sorry, I didn't S-
0: certainly. Can you relate yeah. the nature of the office of Secretary of Defense that uh, Secretary McNamara encountered when he um, began serving in that office in, in early 1961?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I talk about a lot and that I certainly didn't expect to find when I kind of embarked on this project was how was how much the position of Secretary of Defense was so new, right? And actually since since the Second World War, there was this kind of push and pull of different agencies of which the Secretary of Defense was almost a central one on who should be in charge of national security policy. Who should be in charge of coordinating military officials? Who should be that leading voice? And essentially the path and the real – so you've got a series of national security acts, but as I show, it's, it's Eisenhower and the Defense Reorganization Act in 1958 that essentially really strengthened the Secretary of Defense. It's so, that, you know, this needs to be the central voice. The military advice that, that, is, that is there needs to come through the Secretary of Defense to the president and he needs to channel this both for budgetary reasons to bring the kind of military budgets that are chaotic and often products of rivalries between the services into order but also to kind of bring make sense of kind of the country's strategic priorities and how you can make sure that all the kind of military advice is working to that end right and that's very much kind of what eisenhower's vision of a secretary of defense Is None of his own Secretary of Defense essentially do any of that. It's a vision. But when Kennedy comes to power, there's still all sorts of ideas, including kind of unifying the, the services, the military services. And McNamara essentially comes in and says, you know, I think this Defense Reorganization Act is a really good basis on which I can start to work from. And he really follows the role to the letter, which is both commendable because he does make use of this tremendous power that the Secretary of Defense now has, thanks to Eisenhower, but it's also a problem because he takes this role, as I show in the book, almost too literally and doesn't want to overstep what he sees as kind of that very clearly defined role, right?
0: How close to President Kennedy was Secretary McNamara? Uh, What was their relationship like
1: So clearly very friendly. So one of the things that I've talked about recently was that I think in part why I was able to find some of the things that I did was because I looked in places where historians don't necessarily always look in terms of source material. And one of the things I found the most helpful um, in terms of gleaning that relationship, well, there were two things. One was the presidential recordings, which the Miller Center have been doing a fantastic work kind of transcribing. And in those recordings, you hear these meetings on Vietnam and on other issues. And what I thought was remarkable listening to those, especially compared to the Johnson administration, is that McNamara is the only person who regularly and actually repeatedly uh, interrupts President Kennedy, including in meetings. No one else does, but he does. And so that the notes that, that suggest the kind of level of comfort. The other source that was really interesting for this was the Jacqueline, or not, was well, the Jackie tapes, where she's being interviewed. These were released a few years ago now, where she was interviewed by Arthur Schlesinger, and the audio is really interesting for these things, so I would walk around and be listening to this, audio rec- recording on my iTunes account and you hear her get talk about kind of behind the scenes and wives are sometimes really good sources of intelligence because she says the only people that that Kennedy felt really close to in his cabinet the only people that he that they socialized with were McNamara and Dylan. and clearly there's a there's a deep affection and friendship that McNamara himself carries well beyond his time in government. You know, he stays very, very heavily involved in the, in the Kennedy Foundation. He chooses the plot where Kennedy is buried in Arlington. And so it's more, it becomes much more than a professional relationship. And that affection is carried over later, as I show in his book, and in a way that surprised me to his brother, Robert Kennedy.
0: Uh, it caught my eye that in positing that President Kennedy's, uh, national security strategy was more akin as opposed to differentiated from President Eisenhower's, you're, um, uh, arguing against, uh, John Lewis Gaddis's, um, thesis that, uh, there is a great differentiation between the two. Oh, well, how did you come up with this particular, uh, 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 point
1: conclusion yeah it 's funny because this came up uh, this came up uh, very early on, kind of in the process of doing my research where I was encouraged to uh, you know to more explicitly take fights with people that i you know I was clearly challenging, and Gaddis was the one that kind of kept coming up and i was actually I was mentioning this yesterday as I was teaching my students because I assigned Gaddis a strategic containment i I happen to think it 's a brilliant book right but it 's true that on this i do I do disagree right I think what historians or more i would say diplomatic historians have in my view kind of underplayed. Um, is how economically prudent Kennedy was. And that's something that I ended up by spending way more time than I had anticipated because it really caught me off guard. Um, he's far more fiscally prudent than historians and especially, I suppose, Gaddis have presented him as. So, so, you know, the idea is that he's this, you know, spendthrift, uh, or spending, big spending Democrat who has no sense of, kind of, has no concern for deficits, and that's not at all what I found. Instead, I found, as I was looking, especially through some of the economic collections, is that some of his advisors are almost annoyed at how preoccupied he is by issues like the balance of payments deficit by gold, and it's becomes an obsession and it casts a shadow over many of his many of his defense policy decisions in particular, because one of the biggest impacts on this balance of payments deficit is the fact that the United States has these military installations all around the world, right? And so that's one thing that I ended up by by talking about way more than I had expected to in the book were these conversations that McNamara is also having with economists and the way that the balance of payments is feeding into the calculations for Vietnam for Vietnam, not just for McNamara, but for Kennedy as well. And I've written about this kind of independently of my book as well, because it is in some ways surprising. I should say though that it's not so surprising to economic historians. I found that there were people like Barry Eichengreen because when I would present this to diplomatic historians, at least early on in the pro- process, there was some surprise and saying, no, but these issues don't really kind of matter until much later in the decade, right? And actually, economic historians, had, there was a great chart that I would always bring up. It's an article um, that Barry Eigengreen wrote many years ago where he showed the frequency of, using, of the use of the term balance of payments. Um, in official documents throughout the 1960s, and he found that actually the peak, so the moment where officials were clearly talking the most about this and were the most preoccupied with this, was in fact the early 60s. So before things to diplomatic historians seemed very serious, they were very serious to people in the Kennedy administration, and that became very clear in my research. So in that sense, it's in that sense, you know, this is where yes, I disagree with Gaddis quite strongly. While respecting his work immensely,
0: <laughs> understood. Uh, what was uh, Secretary McNamara thinking uh, in, um, in concerning the his um, concerning the Vietnam policy uh, when he advocated with Secretary Rusk in their memorandum of uh, the fall of 1961 large scale military intervention by the United States in South Vietnam, and why, after Ken- President Kennedy, in essence? Uh, silently vetoed this particular uh, course of action, did he, uh, in essence, change course? Was it because he wanted to follow the president's um, inclinations?
1: Yes, so I don't actually give a conclusive answer to that. Right in, in in the book, I, I note it and I think it's obvious. And I think what I what I try to show throughout the book is actually in some ways there's a pattern here. Right, is I think this is the point probably where he realizes that Kennedy's really not interested in inter- in introducing any kind of combat troops into Vietnam. Right, and. So he does backtrack, and there's a sense very strongly at different moments that he presents either in cabinet meetings or in public views that he believes the president wants to have represented, right? So that U-turn clearly is because Kennedy tells him, you know, revise your view on this, right? Um, But I think that doesn't mean later... To say that is not doesn't necessarily mean that McNamara himself. Um, so later there are other moments where you see him, especially in the Kennedy administration, defending views that other historians have said. Oh, here he is just defending Kennedy's view, right? But what I show is actually he has his own reasons for supporting things like withdrawal from Vietnam, and if anything, he's far more enthusiastic about a plan to withdraw from Vietnam. Whereas you know people like John Newman point to that U-turn in November 61 and see the same thing happening in October 63 and say well when he comes out and says it's time for us to get out of Vietnam and we aim to withdraw by 1965 what he's doing there is he's really defending Kennedy's view and what I show in the book is while that's obviously true in 61 that's less clear in 63. In 63 it's actually his own agenda is much, much clearer. That it coincides with the president, I don't think is necessarily in question. But I do think that his own view is much stronger than historians have necessarily appreciated in the past.
0: Do we know how Secretary McNamara reacted to the uh, um, South, the governments of South Vietnam's defeat in the Battle of, I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, yeah. Apac uh... Yeah. in the spring of 1963
1: yeah so this is a this was another thing that i found kind of interesting because there's a sense certainly in the books that i had read before uh, tackling this research project i should say in the initial research project i didn't want to i was going to focus on the office of the secretary of defense throughout the vietnam war and in the end i focused just on mcnamara because i thought that actually there was a lot to say that was new and one of the things that i realized that was new was that there's a sense that he starts to push for this idea of withdrawing from Vietnam in the spring of 62 and into the fall of 63. And a number of setbacks, so both in APAC but then after during the Buddhist crisis, um, you know, intervene that Historians say, well, you know, here we've got McNamara on this side, who's, you know, and not all, but the, the overwhelming kind of representation is he's wildly opt- optimistic. He thinks, well, these are just minor setbacks, you know. In overall, the program hasn't derailed at all, and we're doing really, really well. And so it's because we're going to win that by 1965 we can get out. And one of the, this is another kind of cool source that I looked at, which were kind of his notes, his handwritten. Uh, trip notes to so these many trips that he's doing to Vietnam in like that he's going he's going to Vietnam throughout this period and taking these kind of really not very well written handwritten notes. But I did become really good at deciphering his handwriting and it became clear as I was reading this handwriting that actually he's not optimistic at all. And that he has real questions about the, the, the capabilities of the South Vietnamese to really do the fighting. He has questions about the Strategic Hamlets Program, which is the kind of founding kind of counterinsurgency program that the, that the Kennedy administration has organized its you know, aid in Vietnam around. He has real questions about how things are moving and how, how strong the government in South Vietnam is and how capable it is, right? But that's not why he sets in motion the kind of, it's not because he's wildly optimistic that he sets in motion um, these withdrawal plans. It's despite being actually quite pessimistic, right? And so my sense is that these are all adding to, if anything, growing concerns that he has about kind of South Vietnam in general. And it's, you know, it's the, the United States kind of ability to really execute a program that's very effective in South Vietnam during this period.
0: Uh, since you brought up the uh, issue of strategic Hamlets, can you tell a little bit about the relationship between Secretary McNamara and uh, Sir Robert Thompson, the uh, counterinsurgency specialist expert uh, yeah. from the British effort in Malaysia in the 1950s?
1: Yeah, that was another thing that was very surprising to me. Actually, is one of the one of the sources which we now have is uh, McNamara's calendar, right? So you could get a sense of who he was talking to. And so it's a great source because you get a sense also of the pace of the man. So there's a lot of kind of 10, 15-minute meetings. And then in the middle of these short, very sharp kind of meetings, you have these very long meetings. And there were two in particular in the early 60s that I point to, one of which is with the economist John Kenneth Galbraith, which is kind of pertains to some of the economic issues I was talking about. The other one is Robert Thompson. And I was stunned at how much time he spends on Robert Thompson. And he describes him as, you know, somewhat of a legend and really clearly listens to him, right? And Robert Thompson, as I show in the book, in some ways he and others, but McNamara seems more focused on Robert Thompson than on others, um, really focuses attention on this idea of a counterinsurgency program. So McNamara is not necessarily that, you know, interesting there are all sorts of funny sentences that his colleagues make about, you know, he's not really his dish of tea. I think it was meant to say the cup of tea, but Gilpatrick calls it dish of tea, right? Uh, It's not really, he's not that interested. But what I show is that what he is interested, why he is interested in counterinsurgency is that counterinsurgency is relatively cheaper or promises to be relatively cheaper. It doesn't require the kind of heavy, Forward deployed military troops, right, that a commitment like Korea, for instance, does, right? So if you can somehow find a system or find a way of working in these kind of lower level conflict situations like Vietnam without having to deploy massive and very expensive kind of defense forces. That in some ways is the secret for McNamara for kind of fighting the wars of the future in the 1960s. So Robert Thompson very much becomes his guide in this, right, and becomes the rationale, which works with his own kind of economic purposes, for holding back and eventually kind of winding down a commitment that seems to be moving more and more towards a kind of more traditionally militarized commitment in Vietnam.
0: How important to the coalescing of almost the entire foreign policy bureaucracy around McNamara's 1963 withdrawal plans due to the need to heal the rift in that same bureaucracy caused by the August 63 conflict of over whether or not to back uh, the dissident generals in overthrowing Diem? Yeah.
1: The question is how...
0: How important was how uh, important. In that coalescing by the need to yeah. heal that rift in the same bureaucracy which came up in August of 63 meaning a month or two before the withdrawal plans became uh, much more of a decision making by the entire bureaucracy because um, as as president kennedy observed in the late august my government is in, in has divide has become divided in itself
1: yeah yeah um, so that's very much kind of that's very much why McNamara initially is kind of put in charge in some ways. It is and, and his trip to Vietnam with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Maxwell Taylor, is very much designed to have a party line, as it were, a policy document where everybody can agree to kind of this is our program. This is our position on Vietnam, and what I found very interesting here too is how much jockeying there is over words, over you know commitments. and they're very very long meetings where the kind of the the fine print of everything is very much discussed by all the principals. Although interestingly. Dean Rusk is not represented. He's not the State Department representative when all of these things are being discussed. It's people below him, including kind of Roger Hillsman and April Harriman, right, who are representing the State Department's voice. But absolutely. But having said that, it still very much has McNamara's imprints, right? So one of the things that I found really interesting was I looked at kind of five drafts of this October 1963 report and found that there was one word in particular that was edited several times, and it was how to characterize what kind of interest South Vietnam was. So I think in the initial iteration it was South Vietnam remains a vital interest, and then I think it's Sullivan, a uh, so press officer in the Defense Department, who who bars, who uh, you know strikes out vital and puts you know. A uh, critical right, and so that what word <laughs> changes according to draft until so finally McNamara crosses it out and puts it's an important interest right, which is a far more ambiguous word, and so there is a sense not only in the kind of text of the report, and actually my book opens with with a kind of scene of him editing this report on the way home. Uh, from Vietnam with William Bundy who drafts the kind of main text and who actually initially describes it as vital interest, right? Uh, Not only in the stage of kind of drafting the report, but then later in the National Security Council meetings where they're discussing these reports, McNamara is very much guiding this process. But it is something that he's also thinking, how can I bring people along? And what I thought was really interesting is people who really disagree with him and don't like him personally, later write to him and say, you know, I want to commend you on bringing order to this, you know, chaotic scene, right? So he is successful in that sense, at least for a time.
0: What was Secretary McNamara's relationship with President Johnson and how did it yeah. differ from that uh, with President Kennedy?
1: Yeah, I think it's a. This is a question that's come up a few times now, and I, I, you know, this is obviously, I suppose, a, a more subjective answer. But my sense, and really, this is something that you get, I think, as you listen to the recordings. Is as I was saying, McNamara interrupts Kennedy. Very often, right? In a way that I actually even found a bit shocking, right? Seems just—it seems rude, <laughs> uh, and that seems to be okay. There seems to be a, a warmth there, right? Whereas his relationship with Johnson, to me at least, seems a lot more hierarchical. And actually, if anything, Johnson is the one who interrupts him, and there's a much more, um, there's a much clearer kind of boss relationship there, right? Um, which I think is consistent with the way, with kind of what we know about Johnson, where, you know, and even actually in his book and in retrospect in his memoirs, Ron McNamara says, you know, this is a man who's full of contradictions, who could be very warm and, you know, affectionate and bullying in the next moment, right? And so you do have a sense of there's definitely more of, um, of a distance and more of a professional relationship there, which I think is quite obvious when you listen to the recordings.
0: On page 141, you state that Secretary McNamara was, quote, myopic to the negative reports coming from the field, unquote, in South Vietnam. Why was that?
1: Uh, so he was myopic, as I show, he, he is and he isn't, right? Is On the one hand, he's 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 integrating them and he's aware of them. But myopic officially in some ways, right? And I think it's because he sets in motion from and I talk a lot about this and this is in some ways why in the end I just focused just on McNamara. So I thought this is so shock it's so striking in terms of kind of what happens next. In the spring of sixty two he sets in motion this process of disengagement from Vietnam, which as I as we just discussed, is premised on the one hand um, on this kind of counterinsurgency thinking, and that if you can just focus on these more grassroots programs, you can. You don't need all these big defense and expensive defense installations. So there's a counterinsurgency logic. There's also a, an economic logic. So there's a sense for McNamara. Well, I, you know, we we can't afford this kind of program, and he's very kind of unambiguous in making that argument, especially as he's talking to to Kennedy about it. And so he's myopic to anything that is going to derail his program, essentially, because at some point in the kind of in late 62, this gathers urgency. And so you find that even as things are going worse in Vietnam, the plans don't change except for the fact that they seem to accelerate, right? The phasing out period seems to shorten. So there seems, if anything, to be more of an urgency to get out rather than to up the kind of commitments, right? Right. And so in that sense, yes, he's myopic to anything, and I think this is a flaw that you see at different points in his career. He's myopic to anything that might derail his plan.
0: Would it be correct to say that you attribute primary influence on the shift in American policy in South Vietnam in 1964-65 to President Johnson?
1: I think that would be correct. I think, you know, and I appreciate that I am, I, I suppose... I'm harsher on Johnson than others. Um, I had a book talk recently where it was very clear um, and I was talking with two colleagues who were much more favorable in their judgment of Johnson and I appreciate that. I think taking into consideration especially his domestic achievements on this particular issue of Vietnam I think that the conclusions that I that the conclusions that my research leads to are quite damning right because I think the way that he organizes Um, the kind of decision-making around national security policy, the way that he pushes out people whose voices matter, um, the way that he has a need to prove his kind of toughness by sending military force, right? All of these things, I think in my view, are not particularly positive attributes of President Johnson. And I think, in that sense, all of those things contribute to um, to a war that is not inevitable in any way.
0: Would it be correct to say that you do not agree with uh, scholars, I'm thinking in particular of George Cahin, who posits that uh, General Kahn uh, was a favorite of the Pentagon, and in fact, uh, some scholars refer to his... Uh, Coup d'état as the quote Pentagon coup unquote.
1: Yeah. So what I what I what I found quite striking also here is, is is McNamara's relationship to South Vietnam, right? And actually going back to the Ziem assassination. Where actually he opposes the Yemen assassination, and not particularly because for any kind of moral reasons of whether or not the United States is entitled to be doing this, but more because he's conced- you know he in his notes, and I think he's speaking to Patrick Honey, the 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 academic uh, of, kind of Southeast Asian affairs who tells him, you know, better the devil you know, right? And you don't know. We don't think that there's anybody who will replace him, right? We don't know who could replace him, and it could just as well be instability. And in that sense, he's absolutely correct, right? And you see that attitude kind of get worse as the situation in South Vietnam gets worse. He's not particularly at any point um, – particularly committed in in private right to any of these of any of these kind of successive leaders. And if anything, by 1966 is saying, let us use their kind of complete failure to govern to just get out, and it's on them, it's not on us, right? And so I don't see, no, I don't I, I don't read things that way. That people around him think, okay, this is somebody that we can work with may be true. My sense is he doesn't, right? And he's not. Uh, he's not particularly... Um, he's much more kind of process-oriented and less kind of interested uh, in specific people, as it were, right? Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, yes it did. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Uh, why did Secretary McNamara support the bombing campaign of the spring of 65, Operation Rolling Thunder, when the Sigma war games of the prior year clearly show that a sustained bombing campaign would have little effect on the decision making of North Vietnam in terms of the conflict in South Vietnam.
1: Yeah, this is something that I really kind of that I've really I have grappled with also because I find that it it raises uh, it raises really difficult kind of moral questions in my mind, right? Is uh, as I write in the book, um I think he ends up by supporting a bombing program because it's a substitute for the introduction, or he thinks it's a substitute for the introduction of combat troops and sizable combat troops, right? And it falls into all of this logic of, you know, the Thomas shelling and signaling and communication and all things, you know, that, we, that have been written about before, right? But what perhaps others haven't emphasized as much is that it's supposed to be a kind of cheap and controlled option, right? Whereas if you introduce combat troops that can kind of start to generate a momentum of its own, the logic goes, well, at least civilians, and in this instance, Secretary McNamara, can be in control of the escalating kind of momentum every step of the way in a bombing program, right? And the idea is you can control that much more. Also, of course, that's not really how it works out also the fundamental logic that you could kind of induce North Vietnam to the negotiating table through bombing presupposes a that that works on the North Vietnam Vietnamese side and b and this is something else that I talk about a lot in the book that you have people within your government whose role it is to initiate negotiations namely the state department and the president who are open to earnest negotiations, right? And neither of those, as it turns out, are correct.
0: Chapter 8 in the book deals extensively with um, Secretary McNamara's change or reversal from opposing the abduction of combat troops to advocating them. Uh, Why did he do so? I didn't quite seem to get the real crux of why he reversed himself. In 1965? Yes, in the yeah. in the in 1965, where he initially, as you just mentioned, he was opposed to the introduction of combat troops, and that's why he favored the bombing campaign. And then he, in from May to July, changes course and becomes an advocate of in, introducing combat troops.
1: Yeah. So, in some ways, for me, this is the. I think that kind of June, July, 65 period is, in some ways, the most interesting one, right? My, I think the focus has often been on kind of October 1963 and the idea that, well, there was a secret plan to get out of Vietnam and only McNamara and Kennedy knew about it or some version of that, right? What happens in July 65 is there's a momentum building to introduce forces. And it's clear that this is coming. And so, again, it's a question of how do you mitigate this? And McNamara says, okay, tells Johnson, I will give you this on one condition, that you call up the reserves and you increase taxes, because otherwise the kind of effect domestically and the effect economically will be catastrophic. And Johnson assures him that he will do that, right? Then he goes to his deputy, to deputy secretary of defense, Cyrus Fans while McNamara is out of the country and says, I'm not doing that. Right? I can't do that politically at this moment. And so McNamara ends up by being sent off to do a press conference where he has to defend the introduction of all these troops while while hiding and it's beautiful because in the background you've got Cyrus Fans with his hand covering his mouth, so in terms of body language which suggests that he's suppressing something. He's he's standing there justifying this program, knowing that he correctly knows that A is going to bankrupt the country. Right? And B, that it's going to cause massive upheaval right so he doesn't support that introduction of troops but insofar as he's being forced to kind of come up with a plan of give as as johnson repeatedly says you know give the military more of something right he insofar as he says okay i have to if if we are going to introduce troops we need to introduce them with these conditions and johnson to his face tells him those conditions will be met and then behind his back backtracks and it's the only time that mcnamara openly says You know, in these oral histories, it's the the only time where he acknowledges, yes, you know, Johnson and I disagreed strongly on this, right? I think it's extremely important also in terms of McNamara's journey after. Because for me, in some ways, that's the moment where he becomes completely disenchanted with his job and realizes, you know, I found another thing that I discovered was that very soon after that, he starts to look to leave the Pentagon, Right. And so clearly that's a turning point for him, in some ways the most important turning point.
0: So you would agree with the traditional interpretation of people like, say, Larry Berman, that the J- July decisions of 1965 in terms of major escalation by the United States in South Vietnam was uh, manipulated and orchestrated by Johnson?
1: Oh, completely. Completely, what I hadn't appreciated, and I don't think they had either, was the, was how prescient McNamara had been and how, how stabbed in the back he feels coming out of that process.
0: George Ball, who was a uh, deputy at the State Department, once uh, noted that while McNamara was a remarkably effective peacetime secretary of Defense uh, for a wartime situation, he was at sea. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think
1: so. I think so, because as I as I, I think, I think I, I really struggled towards the end. You know, my book doesn't really have a conclusion as much as it has like a set of questions. Right. And one of the questions that I find that I'm really kind of haunted with is, you know, it's one thing to 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 silence yourself out of loyalty to the president and out of kind of a sense of your role and then the cost of that is you know a very expensive program right but from the moment that you're silencing your prescient doubts about the human consequences and the economic cost of a war where people are dying, right? And you're unable to speak out when that is happening. I think that's much more serious, right? And it's much more morally damning, right? That he never really... So yes, I think in that sense, the mistakes he made would have been less catastrophic if it had been a peacetime situation. The situation of war, his inability to speak out and to to step out of these kind of self-constrained limits until until your self-imposed limits, until much later, I find very problematic.
0: Is that what you meant on page 185, where you state that uh, his mistakes were in Vietnam were not that he was a preeminent hawk, but that he defined his job and his loyalty in a way that was too constrained?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because what I find is that you know, as I was saying, if you're having a bombing program whose end whose end objective is to have negotiations, right? That's the whole purpose of it. It's just supposed to be signaling and inducing people to negotiations. But you're reflecting to because one of the things that I uncovered, for instance, was were these diaries of his closest advisors and one of the main things that they're really frustrated with is that the State Department, who's supposed to be opening up negotiations, are so intransigent and what they feel intransigent and they feel are not ad- approaching negotiations with enough earnestness, you know, not they're not really in good faith approaching these negotiations. That's catastrophic, right? Because you're still pushing through a military program, you're still bombing, you're still introducing troops. But the counterpart of why you're doing that is not happening and you're not stepping in until, as I show, the kind of Philadelphia initiative in much later, right? Not until then, when essentially McNamara is falling apart, does he step out of this ridiculously constrained idea of his role, right? And there's a... There's a Obtuseness to that, because he's still sending all these young men to their deaths. Not to speak of the Vietnamese casualties on the other side, right?
0: In uh, your conclusion, uh, I was surprised that you go back, in essence, to the John Lewis Gaddis correlation between uh, domestic economics and foreign policy. The, of course, that your differential difference with Gaddis is that you don't put Kennedy. As a uh, expansionist, either domestically or in foreign policy, but you're quite content to put Johnson in that particular box. But to be honest, isn't that a little bit reductionist? I'm thinking of particular President Eisenhower, who, of course, was the preeminent, um, you know, uh, hawk on terms of domestic spending, meaning that he was a budgeteer, did not like uh, spending. An extra dollar, if necessary, on domestic programs, but at the same time was, uh, in terms of the 1960s, a uh, big endorser of Johnson's escalation policy in Vietnam, and even in 1961, uh, advocated to can the United States intervene militarily in Laos. Sure.
1: I, I personally don't think so, and his advisors didn't think so either, right? So, I mean, Johnson's advisors is what I'm talking. Uh, so you have people like Secretary Dillon, or um, a lot. Essentially, most of the uh, of the people in the National Security Council and in Treasury who are involved in kind of more economic and fiscal issues, all essentially make sim- similar comments where they say, well, Johnson wasn't that interested in any of these issues, and if he was, he never told me, right? And so, they try to draw his attention to issues of balance of payment, to the kind of fiscal impact of things, and he's just not interested in these issues, right? And he's certainly not haunted by the kind of economic consequences of some of his decisions in the way that I very clearly Kennedy is, right? So, for instance, he sets up this kind of high-powered team to look at balance of payments issues, and that essentially falls into disuse as soon as Kennedy dies, right? So there are... Certainly, his advisors saw that as, in some ways, the most important difference between Kennedy and Johnson. And so... I took them on their word. As they were.
0: Understood. Uh, if you wanted people to take one thing away from your yeah. book, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's really tough. Uh, that's why. That's why I, I end with kind of six things. I'm not gonna. Do, I'm not gonna list through them here. I end with six things uh, at the end of my book. The so six questions that I feel that we're left with that are in some ways, you know, traditionally the kind of counterfactuals that were that 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 deal with his period. It's always, you know, what if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated? How would things have been different if he hadn't been assassinated? And so I end my book by basically saying, you know, well, here are six other counterfactuals that are in some ways more interesting, right? And amongst those are issues of, you know, the nature of civil-military relations in the United States, the imbalance between the State Department and the Defense Department, which in fact were the two things that I was going to be, I thought I would focus kind of most of my attention on, partly because my next research project focuses on these issues. Um, But I think what I think, I hope people get the most from, and I think where I think probably my biggest contribution is, is because I was incredibly fortunate to uncover new sources. I think for the first time we come a little bit closer to knowing what it is that Robert McNamara really thought because he was so tight-lived, including in his memoirs. He never really, really got into kind of what he really thought. And I think for the first time, we have access to a whole body of primary sources. We have a much clearer sense that this was never McNamara's war in the sense that it was never his desire nor his design to have as many U.S. troops in Vietnam as were there under his watch, right? And that to some extent, he he suffered from that, but it's not necessarily suffering, you know, that suffering was much greater for the people who had to kind of suffer, in, you know, had to be deployed because of those
0: decisions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Basha, with that observation for uh, being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Basha.
1: Thank you very much.